I'd like to ask you please to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 14. As you're turning there, let me set the stage for what we're about to encounter in God's Word by remembering where we left off last time we were here. Last week, we learned from chapter 13 that Saul's army had dwindled down to a measly 600 men. And those men were described as being terrified and trembling. Why? Well, because they were facing insurmountable odds against a powerful and more technologically advanced force of the Philistines. We're told that the Philistines had 30,000 chariots. The Israelites had zero. The Philistines had 6,000 horsemen, and as far as we can tell, the Israelites had zero. We also find that the Philistines had iron weapons for their soldiers. They were massive in their production, but the Israelites had a grand total of two swords and two spears. Why? Because the embargo that the Philistines had placed on the blacksmiths led the Israelites to have nothing to carry into battle except for equipment like pruning hooks and cattle prods. And this led the people of Israel to be terrified. In chapter 13, verse 6, we read that the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. If you remember last week, the Philistines had not yet attacked. We get through the whole chapter. Everybody is afraid. Everyone is deserting. And then Saul performs a sacrifice. He disobeys God. He does not wait for Samuel. But at the end of the chapter, there's still no battle that takes place. Instead, the Philistines begin positioning themselves and spreading themselves out like a blanket across the northern border of the territory of Judah. And they set up these small garrisons on the outposts where these soldiers would keep watch near the camp. And by all earthly wisdom, it was clear that the Israelites were about to be destroyed. But let's watch God guard and protect and defend his people through the faithful boldness of one soldier. But first... Let's commit our study to the Word of God uh, by asking the Lord to help us with the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you right now acknowledging that this is your holy Word. You have spoken it to us. It is perfect, infallible. It is a Word that is capable of transformation. We ask, Lord, that today, by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would cause us to understand cause us to experience genuine, heartfelt conviction where there is sin or where there is laziness or where there is lack of faith or where there is lack of boldness. And I ask, Lord, that you would spur us on to cause us to serve you faithfully and powerfully, not on our own strength, for, Lord, we have none, but in the strength that you give to us as we see in this chapter. Help us, Lord, to see your Son, Jesus Christ, as tantamount and paramount. And we ask, Lord, that you would please, by your grace, Cause him to be great in our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this chapter is incredible, but it's not very complex. However, it is very, very detailed. It is filled with a wealth of information as well as numerous allusions to other parts of Scripture. And since it's absolutely overflowing with easy-to-miss details, what we're going to do is instead of reading the entire thing right up front, we're going to walk through it piece by piece by piece and ensure that we get as much of the information and understand it as possible. The events that unfold in chapter 14, they're a masterful example of a five-act play, which is exactly how we're going to walk through the chapter, one scene at a time. Scene number one, I'm sorry, act number one is the setup. Now, I'm not a huge fan of snow, 
Uh, I don't like the cold in general, and the idea that there is cold material all over the ground that you can't avoid is not exciting to me. But one thing that I do love about snow is the way that it makes everything stand out. It makes every other color pop. The pure whiteness of the snow causes every color to be displayed. Well, why does that happen? It happens because of contrast. And in this chapter, what we are going to see is that King Saul is being displayed in his true colors by way of contrast. And this contrast will happen when he is placed up against his own son, Jonathan. Let's see how that looks, starting in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now let's pause. Now, we're not told exactly why Jonathan doesn't tell his dad that he's going to go fight these soldiers. But the answer is probably something that we can deduce from the circumstances. Do you remember last week why Saul was so nervous and what caused him to move forward with the sacrifice before he was supposed to do it? If you remember in the previous chapter, he was nervous because people were abandoning him in droves. Over the course of seven days, 2,400 people had deserted from his troop. 80% of his soldiers gone. And I don't think Saul was probably going to be very excited about anybody who approached him and said, hey, look, I just want to take a day trip. Just me and my armor guard. Just going to go down the road a little bit. We'll be back tonight. I don't think he would have liked that. So Jonathan was ready to fight, but you'll notice that Saul, he's not the one making the advances here. Verse 2, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Now, as we learned last week, the people were hiding in caves and in cisterns. Well, now we see that Saul himself, even the king of the country, had been diminished to being a caveman because of the Philistine army. But it's not where Saul is staying that is most pronounced here at the beginning of the chapter. It's who he was with. The company that he keeps is highlighted right up front in this chapter. Notice his entourage of verse 3. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Now, do you remember all the way back to the beginning of the book? Do you remember Eli? He was the wicked, permissive, godless priest who the Lord testified against at the beginning of this story. Samuel's very first prophecy was about the Lord ripping the priesthood away from Eli and away from Eli's family, and giving it to someone else. And now Saul has brought the grandson of Eli in as his closest companion. And do you remember Hophni and Phinehas? Do you remember how evil they were? Well, the man who was with him is Phinehas's son. Now, to be clear, that does not indicate necessarily that he was an evil man. We need to judge this person on his own merits. But we do get a brief but very clear indicator that this man is following in his father's footsteps. Did you notice he is wearing the clothes, the ephod, that are supposed to be worn by the high priest in the tabernacle and used for worship? He is not in the tabernacle. He is not using them for worship. He has taken the priestly garments out 
onto the battlefield. This little detail is going to pay off in a big way in just a little bit because we are going to see that he is far more like his father than we can see from this short verse. But it's important for us to make a note of it here. So for now, just notice that there is a big difference between the type of person that Saul and Jonathan choose to surround themselves with. That's the setup. Jonathan is a functioning man of action. Saul is a cowering man who is in a cave. Jonathan has a brave companion who goes with him. He is not like the rest of the trembling Israelites. And Saul made friends with the son of the most wicked man described so far in this book. That's act one. Let's move now to act number two. We'll call this the ultimate warrior. In this portion of the chapter, the camera is going to leave the camp of Saul and it's going to follow Jonathan into battle. Verse four says, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag and on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other in the south in front of Geba. Now, if you are anything like most modern Americans, as soon as you started reading that, you just turned your brain off completely. We're like, I don't really care about any of the details of the landscape that they are in right now. But let's try to get a picture of what's going on because it will help us understand just how incredible this event is. You see, Jonathan and his armor bearer were standing on one side of a great ravine. In Israel, they have a landscape format that we don't have here. It's called a wadi. And what that is, is when there is a desert land, when the water comes through, it will rush down to the rivers. And in doing so, it will cut these large trenches in the ground. And those are called wadis. Well, he's on one side of a wadi, and there is a deep trench, probably about 50 to 100 feet down. And there's a valley there. And on the other side, there's a cliff where they can see the enemy army. So he is standing on one side, and he has to, in order to reach the enemy, go straight down, across, and straight up. But we actually know a lot more by the names that were given to these slopes. The one that he is standing on is called Senna. That doesn't mean anything to you unless you understand Hebrew, which means, in Hebrew, thorns or thorny. He is standing on a side covered in thorn bushes. And the other side is called slippery or shiny. Now, if you are a rock climber, slippery or shiny rocks are the ones that are hard to climb. If it's shiny, it means it probably doesn't have a lot of places to grip. And that is the side where the enemy is. So here's what we see he has to do. He has to climb down into the middle of the ravine and stand there looking up at these enemies and then he will eventually have to climb up to attack them. Verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And this, in my opinion, is the most important verse in the entire chapter. It is definitely the most important when it comes to understanding Jonathan. First, notice that he highlights that they are, going to dis they are going to attack a people that he simply describes as uncircumcised. Now, you might be thinking, like, that's kind of a weird thing to bring up right now, Jonathan. Like, what are you talking about? But that statement, these people are uncircumcised, that statement 
is a declaration that helps us understand exactly what Jonathan was thinking. We see how he was viewing this battle. You see, circumcision was the outward expression of the Old Covenant. It was the way that men identified with the promises of God. And by calling these Philistines the uncircumcised, Jonathan is putting this war that they are in into theological categories. This is God versus God's enemies, and we are on God's side. Later in this chapter, you're going to see Saul talk about this war, and you are going to see that he does not put it into theological categories. He makes it personal. It is Saul versus Saul's enemies. That is not how Jonathan sees this war. He sees it as God's covenant people being protected by their covenant God. And that is highlighted much more clearly in his very next sentence when it says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Do you see Jonathan's incredible statement of faith here? He says that there is something that he knows and there's something that he doesn't know. He knows that nothing can stop the Lord from saving. Praise God, what a powerful statement. Nothing can stop God from saving. If he wants to save, he will save. Nothing can stop the Lord from saving. Doesn't matter what the odds are. Many warriors, cool. Just a couple of us, no problem. Because God can save by many or he can save by few. This is very similar language to what we will see in David in just a couple chapters when he says, the battle belongs to the Lord. Here, Jonathan is saying, It doesn't matter who is against us. If God is for us, no one can win against us. He knows that God will get the victory. But Jonathan also acknowledges that there is something he doesn't know. He does not know if God is going to use this attack to accomplish their salvation against the Philistines. Look again. He simply says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Now this is powerful and true faith. It is walking forward into the unknown, armed with what you know to be true about God. Jonathan knew God is going to save Israel. That allowed him to have courage in the face of insurmountable odds. He was desirous. I want to take part in God's saving of his people. I want to take part in his mission to protect us and keep his covenant. But he also knew that doing so might cost him his very life. Now, we're not in the same kind of war that Jonathan was. We do not pick up weapons. We do not go into battle. Our war, however, is far more deadly, far more widespread, and has much longer-lasting consequences. We are soldiers, according to Paul, but not in a physical, earthly military. We are soldiers for the Lord, and we do not fight against flesh and blood. We are not militaristic. We are instead advancing the cause of God's kingdom. How? by proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. God had a mission in this point in the Old Covenant. He was going to protect his people from the Philistines. He had stated that mission to Samuel about Saul. That was the mission, and God promised to keep them. We have a mission, which is to proclaim the good news and build God's kingdom. Here we come to our first application point of the morning. Attempt great things for God. Now, this is not the first time that I've drawn on, on William Carey's masterful formulation. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Consider that phrase in light of Jonathan's boldness here. 
He was so convinced of the promises of God that he was willing to risk his life to go fight the Philistines. William Carey later was so convinced of God's covenantal promises that he gave up everything so that he could take the gospel to India and become what we now call the father of modern missions. He did so based upon the promise that Jesus gave, which said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. William Carey acted upon what he knew and therefore he walked into the unknown of what would happen to him on the mission field. Well, what about you? What are we doing? Is there something that you are afraid of? Is there someone that you are fearful to talk to about the gospel? Are there people that you have simply given up on and you don't even go into that battle? You're convinced that they don't listen, so you don't even try. Well, listen, the odds are exactly the same as they were with Jonathan. Exactly the same in our situation. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? You can't lose. You can plant seeds and the Lord will cause them to grow if it's his will. Attempt great things. Stand on the promise of God. Stand on what you know to be true about him. Stand on what you know to be true of his mission. And then go forward in holy boldness. That is what faith looks like. Well, let's see how it worked out for Jonathan. Verse 7. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Now, I just want to take a quick side note here, a forward-facing glance in the book, because Jonathan seems to make this kind of powerful friendship connection with the people who are around him. They love him. They follow him. <coughs> this guy clearly trusts Jonathan so much that he is willing to walk into a nest of his enemies just because Jonathan wants to. Do whatever you want. Throughout the entire book, you're not going to see Saul ever be treated this way by his followers. Jonathan's leadership inspired loyalty and love. Saul, however, leads by force and by power and by threats. Verse 8, Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we'll show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will st stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. Now get the picture here. Jonathan is saying, let's go down in the middle of the ravine. Let's go stand at the bottom, and there we will look up at our enemies, and we'll make ourselves plain to them. We'll make sure that they see us. And if they come down to us, we're just going to wait till they get there. If they instead taunt us and call us up to fight them, well then, God definitely is going to give us the victory. But notice, either way, there's going to be a fight. Verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Now you can see in this exchange that the Philistines had no fear of Jonathan. They had no fear of this armor bearer. They thought that their position was impregnable. There's no way these guys are going to come up here and these two men are going to in any way harm us. So they welcomed them mockingly to a frontal attack. Now, probably this occurred because they didn't have that many weapons and they probably didn't want to throw their spears down knowing that in order to recover them, 
they would have to crawl down into this pit themselves. So they said, you guys go ahead and come up here and make our jobs easy for us. And so here's what we see taking place. Verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer. And his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within as if it were half a furrow's length in an acre of land. Now, Jonathan is an absolute beast. He attacks this camp knowing the odds are 10 to 1. Now, let's be clear. When he was on the other side, he could see into the camp of the Philistines. He was not surprised that there are about 20 of these men there. He knows the odds are 10 to 1. Even so, Jonathan and his armor bearer were able to wipe them all out, every last one. The way that it describes it is that Jonathan would find a way to knock them to the ground, and his armor bearer would be the one who actually kills them. Do you know what that means? It indicates that Jonathan was probably unarmed and the weapons were in the hand of his fellow soldier. Jonathan was probably fighting hand to hand against soldiers with swords and spears. And yet, Jonathan was able to knock them all down and his friend was able to make the final blow. Verse 15. And there was a panic in the camp in the field and among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became very great panic. Now remember, where Jonathan is attacking, that's not the main camp of the Philistines. He is attacking an outpost. He is watching a watchtower. And so when he goes in and he attacks them, the entire camp sees our outpost has been overthrown. All of the people that we set up to watch and keep our guard are all dead. And so the Philistine army is described in the previous chapter as being as numerous as the sand on the sea. And here, they're all in panic. Why? Because two soldiers crawled up out of the wadi and made quick work of their watchtower on the cliff. And it also said that the earth began to quake. Now, that might be a literal earthquake that's being spoken about here, or it may be speaking about the effects of the thousands and thousands of feet that were scrambling to their battle stations. We're not really sure. But the final line makes the results evident. It says there was a very great panic amongst the Philistines. And so Act 2 closes with a resounding victory on Jonathan's part. This is a big win. And now the camera is going to pan back immediately to see the reaction of the camp of Saul. Let's see how they respond in Act 3. We'll just call it victory by default. Verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Now Saul is up in the mountains. He can see across the wadi. He can see across the way. He sees. He's got his eye on the, on the camp of the Philistines. And now he sees that that encampment had become like an anthill that had just been kicked Everyone was scrambling around. And imagine what he might have been thinking when he learned that Jonathan, his own son, was now missing. Maybe he knew 
Jonathan went out to fight the Philistines. Maybe they had a conversation about this multiple times over the previous week about how Jonathan was desirous to go. Maybe he thought Jonathan had been captured. It's even possible that Saul is now jealous because he can see that Jonathan had victory and Saul is unhappy that Jonathan is the one who once again is the one to give a major blow against the Philistines while he, Saul, is on the sidelines. All we know for sure here is that Saul is going to reveal something in the next verse that tells us exactly how far he had fallen. Verse 18, so Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Wow, now we understand why Saul is hanging out with Eli's family. Now we understand why the very son of Phinehas, the guy who first took the ark out onto the battlefield, is now an advisor for Saul. Saul has shown to be just as bad as Hophni and Phinehas, taking the Ark of the Covenant into the war camp like it was some kind of good luck charm. Do you remember what happened the last time Israel did this? It was literally the bloodiest battle the Israelites ever experienced from the time of the Exodus to the time of the exile, and the Israelites were on the losing end. There is no way they should have looked at this and thought, that's a good idea. Verse 19, when Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Now, we could spend a long time right here this sentence should shock anyone who is familiar with Old Testament standards of, of worship. Not only did these fools take the ark out of its place and into a cave on the front lines of war, the priest actually laid his hand on it. This is a capital offense. Nobody was ever supposed to do that, not even the high priest. Yet, the priest, presumably still the grandson of Eli, sets aside any semblance of biblical worship, and he does so to try and conjure an answer out of the ark like it's some kind of genie in a bottle. But unsurprisingly, God is silent. God does not answer. Meanwhile, the Philistine camp is not settling down. Things are getting worse and worse. So Saul basically says to the priest, just stop. Withdraw your hand. Verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now, this is not the first time that God has done this specific thing for Israel. We, we don't know the minute details. We don't know how this operated between individuals. All we know is that the soldiers, for some reason, of the Philistine army started to fight and kill each other. God caused them to literally turn and destroy their own teammates. That is when Saul arrived and joined up with Jonathan and started fighting together against the confused Philistines. Verse 21. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Now, this is actually new information to us. We, we haven't heard this anywhere in the text leading up to this point. Here is where we discover that there were a number of Israelites who had actually joined the army of the Philistines. But to be honest, that shouldn't really be very surprising to us. Just think about it. Imagine that you're a farmer in the countryside of Israel, 
And all of a sudden, an army with 30,000 chariots rolls up into your backyard and they say, hey, listen, we'll make you a deal. We will either kill you and your family and burn your house to the ground, or you can come fight on our team. And for most people, that was an easy decision, although uncomfortable. But now Saul and Jonathan have arrived, and the Philistines were in disarray, confusingly fighting each other. And the Israelite soldiers, who had been pressed into service, rejoined Israel's team, and they fought tooth and nail against their captors. Verse 22, Likewise, when all the men of Israel, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them into battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Now, this was an incredible victory sparked by two brave men. It is a victory almost unparalleled in Israel's history. They routed a full-fledged army with four waves of attack, starting with two men and culminating in the entire countryside of Israel joining the fight. But don't gloss over the underlying reality that it was the Lord who saved Israel that day. The text says the Lord saved them that day. Just as Jonathan had said, it was the Lord who had given them over into the Israelites' hand. Now, what's interesting is that phrase that is used here is not placed here by accident. As I have noted many times over the last couple of chapters, this portion of the book is intentionally being paralleled with the Exodus. Repeatedly, there are lines drawn between the Philistines and the Egyptians. And this phrase is the exact quote that we see in Exodus chapter 14, verse 30, which is what is stated as soon as the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. There it says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. The exact same phrase is now picked up by Samuel and placed in his book to describe what is taking place against the Philistines. And what did the people do after crossing the Red Sea? Well, the people rejoiced. They celebrated. They sang. Actually, literally, that 15 in Exodus chapter 15, that is the first song recorded in the entire Bible. But that's not how Saul responded. Saul decided to chase down the Philistines and to wipe out as many as possible while they had momentum, which is what we see when we come to Act 4, which I will simply call Bright Eyes. Verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Once again, notice that Saul does not put this war into theological categories. It's all about him. He said, nobody could eat until I am avenged on my enemies. Once again, notice that his chief tactic here for inspiring his troops is just to threaten them. I will put a curse on you if you eat food, he said. So he places a curse on anyone until some mysterious benchmark of his own choosing would be met. And being afraid of the king's wrath, nobody ate. Now, can we all just agree, that's crazy? Look, I don't eat breakfast. I almost never eat breakfast. I know that's bad for me. I just don't, I just don't do it. But yesterday, I shoveled snow for roughly an hour. And when I came inside to the men's discipleship gathering, I ate because I was hungry because I was shoveling snow. I was just attacking snow. These people were fighting actual people. 
They were fighting bloodthirsty soldiers of a professional army. And not only that, they were fighting in the heat of the day in one of the hottest and driest places in the world. And what's more, Saul expects them to go out and fight thousands of more people as they chase them across treacherous landscapes and hard terrain, and they have to do all of it on an empty stomach. This is a boneheaded move on Saul's part. But this is one of the most important callbacks that we find in this chapter. This is not the first time that an, a leader of Israel has made a rash vow. Back in Judges chapter 11, verses 30 through 31, we find the story of Jephthah, who was one of Israel's judges, and we see how he made a vow. There it says, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand. Now, to be clear, this is Jephthah praying to the Lord. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And the Lord did give victory to Jephthah, and they did defeat the the Ammonites, and everybody was celebrating, but when they go home, tragically, the first thing that walked out of his house was his own daughter. And if you're just taking the prima facie reading of the text, then Jephthah did, in fact, take her and sacrifice her. Now, of course, that is not something God desired. In fact, it was something God explicitly and deliberately had spoken against and prohibited. But Jephthah, being brash and proud and ignorant of the law and ignorant of God and ignorant of the heart of God, made a foolish vow with tragic consequences. And now Saul does the very same thing. And just like Jephthah, his own child, who is innocent, is going to get caught in his crosshairs. Verse 25. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Now this probably means there was literally an abandoned hive. There was one that was either bereft of bees, or the hive was so overflowing in the tree that it was dripping down the trunk or onto the ground, and it was so, so plentiful that it was just sitting there for anybody who wanted to take the honeycomb. Well, honey was literally like king food in those days. It was the sweetest, most sugary food that was available in their region. But everyone was so afraid of King Saul, they walked right past it as their stomachs were growling. Verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, uh, had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. 1 Samuel is a literary masterpiece. And it is so in a million ways. But one of my favorite things that the author develops is the family drama. Jonathan initially ate this food because he was probably still out fighting when Saul had made this rash vow. So he ate it not knowing that his father had made the oath. He ate it not out of belligerence or rebellion, but out of hunger. But when confronted, he just gives an honest 
and righteous answer that refutes the actions of his father, the king. He literally just says that his father had troubled Israel. Now, once again, that is by no means an accidental term to be used. This is an explicit callback to the book of Judges when the last person who was called a troubler of Israel was killed. And if you remember, that was the story of Achan, who was stoned. Why? For the way he responded to the spoils of battle. So Act 4 closes with righteous Jonathan verbally acknowledging that his own father was a fool. Which brings us to our final act, which we will call the trial. Verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ayajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. Now Saul, he seems to have met his quota. We killed enough to make me happy. I am avenged on my enemies. So now you guys can eat of the plunder. But under the old covenant, Jews had very strict food laws. And one of the chief regulations was that they would require all of the blood be drained out of the body before it would be cooked or eaten because the blood was representative of atonement. Now, without getting into the background of all the Levitical laws, it's just worth noting that, yes, these people were actually sinning against the Lord. But what is really crazy is that literally every other offense that Saul commits is overlooked. Saul has not done anything according to the law since he became the king. He constantly acts outside the boundaries. Even in this chapter, he brought the ark with him like it was a lucky four-leaf clover or a rabbit's foot. But for some reason, Saul is going to either decide to care about this one law or he's going to act as though he cares so that he looks good with the more pious people in his group. So Saul said to the people, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people who brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there, and Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Now this again is new information. It's telling us that Saul had never built an altar to worship God. Never in his entire life, it appears, had he actually taken part in this activity. But did, he, did you see that this altar isn't even for worship? It's just for killing the animals. It's only for draining blood so that they could eat. Once again, we saw that, see that Saul has no interest in actual worship of God. Now, before moving on, a couple of brief applications we need to draw from this event. First, did you notice that now... Now Saul seems to care about God's rules. Now, we have to guard against this kind of thing. We have to be careful about selective obedience because, you see, it is very easy for us to care about the sins that other people commit. It is very easy for us to point the finger and say, yes, I am angered by all of the sinful things that they do while dismissing the sins that we enjoy. Sure, it's easy to point the finger, but we are called to submit our entire lives to God every action to God? Are you giving yourself a pass because you consider the things that you do to be a lesser sin? That's exactly what Saul did in the last chapter. That's exactly why the kingdom was taken from him, because he considered some of God's commands to be small or minor or insignificant or unnecessary to follow. 
The second application we need to draw from this portion is that there are people who worship God only when they feel like worshiping him or when they feel like they need him. Saul is not an Old Testament believer. He is an unbeliever. And he is going to show himself over and over and over to be an enemy of God. But whenever he feels as though it would be advantageous to get God on his side, well, then he's going to act ever so briefly like he cares. That is not worship. There are many people who call themselves Christians who do the exact same thing. And they are not true Christians. They might attend church once in a while. They might pray when they are in a tough spot. They might have some Christian standards of morality that they hold to, but they have the exact same heart of indifference towards God that is displayed here in Saul. They will look to God when they are in a bind and then immediately go back to their life and rebellion against God as soon as any crisis is averted. These are the kinds of people that Jesus is speaking about when he says that many will say to me on that last day, Lord, Lord, did I not do all these things in your name? And he will simply say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Christians are not Christians because we've earned it. Don't hear me saying that you need to work your way in. Christians become Christians because God is gracious and he saves us from sin. But as a result of that, all true Christians are transformed. There is no category in the New Testament for a saved person who does not grow in obedience to the Lord. One of the evidences of life is growth. Saul does not display growth. He does not display life. Here's the question. Do you? Jesus said that we will know a tree by its fruit. Have you bowed your knee to Jesus as Savior or are you just giving lip service to him? Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned to him in obedience and worship? Or are you, like Saul, just going through the motions? Verse 36. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, speaking of God, did not answer him that day. <clears throat> Once again, Saul is desirous to jump in without praying about anything, but one of the priests rightly pointed him to the necessity of, Hey, if we're going to go fight these guys all night long, maybe we should just ask God about it first. But when God doesn't answer, Saul is going to assume that it's because of sin in the camp. And he is going to assume that it's because of the sin of the people eating the food without properly preparing it. Verse 38. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Now let's make sure we understand what Saul is saying here. He was declaring, look, I don't care who it was that sinned. Even if it's my own son, he's going to die. And the people responded, do whatever seems best to you. Now Saul clearly did this because he expected the lot to say that Saul and his son were the innocent ones. Verse 41 Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is on me or on Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is on your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan said, Jonathan and Saul were taken. 
but the people escaped. Now, this might sound a little difficult to understand. Let me make it very, very simple. Do you remember that ephod that we learned about earlier that's out on the battlefield? Well, the ephod had two things that were placed on the top. And they were these pieces that the Lord had created called the Urim and the Thummim. And God would use those to speak to the priest. Now, interestingly, we have very little information in the Old Testament about how they would work, but God would basically use those to give answers to the priest when they would ask questions. And so Saul is saying, look, somehow identify with the Urim, the one on the one side, if we're at fault, and if it's the others. If it's anybody else, just show us by giving indication with the other side. Now, imagine how shocked Saul was when he realized that it was Saul and Jonathan's side of the equation that is pointed out. Verse 42, Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do to me and much more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Now, I don't know what's more shocking here. The way that Jonathan willingly accepts his fate for the crime that he didn't even know he was committing. Or Saul's willingness to kill his son without even crying to God for mercy. Most commentators highlight the fact here that there probably was some underlying jealousy that still exists between Saul and his son. Because why else would Saul just so willingly say, all right, Jonathan, you're going to die. I do think that's possible, but I don't see it clearly in the text. But what I do see is that Saul actually puts a curse on himself in this moment. He's saying, may the Lord do this to me if I don't kill my own son. I am now going to follow through with my stupid threat, and if I don't, may God put me to death. Now let's not forget, this is not just a fairy tale. This is a true story about real people in an actual standoff. This is not Hollywood. Jonathan is really Saul's son. And he is truly ready to be killed for the good of the nation so that they can have what the Lord desired them to have. So that they could have uh, the covenant promises. And so that the Lord could lead them in victory. If if that's what it takes, if God's not going to fight for us unless I die, then I'll die. And Saul is willing to be heartless, heartless and kill his own son because of a stupid oath that he had placed over the people in a moment of terrible government, governance. This almost became a public ed- execution that night. But then something absolutely shocking happens. Verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it! As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Now, in the previous chapter, we heard that God was going to take the kingdom away from Saul. And in this chapter, we see that the Israelites themselves reject his rule. He said, it's either me or Jonathan. He's going to die or I'm going to die. And here, the people said, by no means are you going to touch that man. Not one hair will fall from his head. And the people who had been so quick to say, you do whatever you want, Saul, they now stand boldly against their king. It's very important that we see what is taking place here. 
as one man, the people rallied around Jonathan, who was innocent, so that the innocent man might be saved. But before we close the page on this chapter, we need to see that there is a very powerful connection to Jesus by contrast here. Let's consider who Jonathan was and what he was doing. He was the prince who went into enemy territory to fight the enemies of God and bring about salvation. And those terms are used in this chapter. And he did so willing to die, whether by the hands of the Philistines or by the hands of his father, so that he might bring about salvation for his people. And he did so that the people of Israel could come out of caves and graves in which they were hiding. In a very similar manner, Jesus, the better Jonathan, came as the Prince of Peace to fight a war on our behalf. He did this to bring about salvation, and he did this so that, he might no longer abide, that we might no longer abide in the grave and in death. And he did this willing to sacrifice his own life by the hands of the people and by the hands of his father. When innocent Jonathan was put on trial, the people rallied around him and they protected him and they ensured that justice prevailed. But when innocent Jesus was put on trial, he had nobody to stand at his defense. He was like a sheep led to the slaughter, but it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jesus did come to save his people, but he would do it by way of his own death. Just like Jonathan, he said, I will die. He told his disciples this on at least four occasions. I am going to go into Jerusalem and be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and there I will be killed. I will die. And he did this so that he might rise on the third day. He died so that he might save the guilty. He died the righteous for the unrighteous. Brothers and sisters, we have a great Savior who suffered alone in our place so that we might be free. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jonathan. Much more, though, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that although Jonathan was brave and he fought a nest of soldiers, that Jesus, our great king, came to fight against the enemies of sin and death so that we might be set free. Lord, we pray that as a response to him, as a response to our salvation, as a response to the promises we have in Christ, that we would have a holy boldness to go forward and to carry out our calling in this world. Help us, Lord, to fearlessly speak about you, to openly converse about you, to have no doubt that you will indeed use your word to transform the hearts and lives of the people that we communicate with. And Lord, I ask that by your grace, you would cause us not to be like Saul, that we would not be cowards, that we would not make rash vows, but Lord, most of all, that we would not commit ourselves to false worship. Lord, if there is anyone here who is just going through the motions, who is just an outward religious person, Lord God, I pray that you would convict their hearts today and open their eyes to the truth of salvation, and Lord, I pray they would be saved. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.